to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. If you're anything like Sayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Preck. And today our guest is Tom Cruise. Tom's a 33-year-old real estate investor out of Wilmington, North Carolina. And after graduating from university, he started a wholesaling retail estate and then graduated to buying single, small, multifamily properties. And he got started with the Section 8 program by accident after purchasing a unit with a tenant that was Section 8. And since then, he has bought and sold over 500 units and currently solely owns 390 properties. So Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, no, I appreciate it for having me me on. Yeah, I'm really curious about learning, deep diving into your story, how you got started. 390 properties at the age of 33. That's quite totally on your own. That's quite a feat. A lot of units. Yeah, I mean, I use partners to get there. But um, but yeah, now currently it's, it's solely on. But yeah, it's been a fun ride. So how did you even get started in real estate? And um, if you can also give us a little bit more about your background as well. Sure. I'm originally from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I moved here when I was five with my family and I grew up in North Carolina, went to the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. I've always been into entrepreneurship. I had a marketing company in college and did SaaS startups and I sold paintball guns in high school. So I've always in some capacity been involved with real or with business in, in some way or form which is kind of strange because neither of my parents are entrepreneurs, but it worked out. Um, as far as how I got started into real estate, it was kind of by accident. I mean, this whole thing's totally by accident. This is not some grand you know, scheme plan that I had. It, I bought a condo you know, out of college for I think it was like a hundred grand. I got in with the FHA program, put my 3% down, got the Obama tax credit. You know, He gave me 8,000 bucks. So I was happy about that. And then I lived there for about a year. You know, At the time I was just doing my marketing thing. I got started wholesaling later on after I try to sell that condo. I was trying to buy a single family house with a with a big backyard because I bought a Doberman Pincher and they don't allow them in um in condo complexes. So I bought this single family and I'm stuck with this condo and I couldn't sell it. I was upside down on it. This is all post 2008. So I rented it and I put it up on Craigslist and I sold it or I rented it to this very nice lesbian couple and they're still in there as of like two years ago. I sold it since then, but they were they were in there the whole time. And it was a very good experience. They're amazing, really good tenants. And that's kind of where the light bulb moment came on. I was like, I was making $500 a month without doing anything. They didn't call me. I didn't call them. The unit was maybe five or six years old at the time. So it was all relatively new. So there was very little maintenance overhead. And here I was killing myself for marketing clients at 500 bucks a month. And I was you know, making that 500 bucks automatically every month. So that's where I got the idea and kind of progressed from there. Awesome. And so like when you actually went and got uh, the renters into your property, what kind of, I guess, how did you vet them? Or like, what are some of the things that you looked for as you had decided to rent to this uh, nice couple? Yeah. 
So I had no idea what I was doing. So I went completely overboard. I mean, I invited them to lunch. Like we went out, had drinks. I mean, it was, we were <laughs> friends by the, by the end of it and they were super cool. So I checked background. I think that was pretty much it. I didn't check credit. I didn't check eviction history. I mean, it was very much on a handshake deal and a lease. And I was like, all right, hope this works out. And it could have gone south and I could have never started this whole journey. So I'm glad that I did. But yeah, I mean, it was it was just very back of the napkin kind of greening process. It's evolved a lot more since then. So after that light bulb went off with renting this uh, condo out, what did you do after there, after then to start and propelling your real estate journey? Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to buy more condos. So it was cheaper. I was able to buy more of them with the income that I was having. So at the time I had my marketing company. And at the same time, I also was getting into wholesaling. Wholesaling, if you don't know, is you know if you find a property that's undervalued, you put it under contract and then you find maybe a flipper or another landlord that wants to buy it from you. So I actually never close on the property. I'm essentially just assigning that contract that I have to somebody else for higher value. So for example, if I buy a property from you, I put it under contract for 70 grand. It's really worth a hundred thousand, but it needs work. I'll go find a flipper and say, Hey man, I'll sell this to you for 75 grand. We go to closing. He brings the 75 grand. I pay your 70,000 and I keep my five grand. So that's how I got started. I took that 5,000. I would reinvest that, combine that with my 500 bucks that I was getting from my first condo, combine that with the income that I was getting from my marketing company, which at the time was maybe three or 4,000 bucks a month. It wasn't anything massive as my salary that I was taking from there. And my goal was every month I wanted to buy one unit on $80,000, 20% down with fees and everything. I was like 16, $17,000 is what I needed to close. So that was kind of my goal was to do maybe three or four wholesale deals per month in order to fund that down payment. And then I'd go buy it, put it under contract. And then 30 days, would, the clock would start to close on it. And then and during those 30 days, I would put another unit under contract and then go out and make the money to close on it. So there were some months where I legit didn't have the down payment funds to close on the property that was under contract. And I just had to scramble. I mean, I had taken credit card advances some months where I couldn't you know, sell enough wholesale deals or had a big expense month on my marketing company. So, But I was just determined to buy at least one unit per month. And that's how I started it. And then eventually, I think around seven or eight condos, you start getting eaten alive by the HOA fees, the condo association fees. You have a tenant now with that many units. They have you know disputes with other neighbors that aren't your tenants. It just becomes kind of a, a headache to deal with. So I started going to single family. We can get into that too. Got it. So when you were doing your wholesaling, you were hustling to get those extra cash flow so oh, yeah. that you can purchase a condo that you would hold for long-term. Exactly. Yeah. So I was turning my active income into passive income. And that's really the key into any of this is I was using my marketing income, my passive income from my rental, my one condo that I had, plus wholesaling activity and rolling that all into my little 15 or 16 grand, kind of nestle that away, go get the condo and then repeat. But by the time I had five or six units, then I'm making five or $600 per unit per month. So that's an extra three grand. You know, I'm making my four, I think it's around four or 5,000 on the high end on the marketing company. And then I do two wholesale deals for 10 grand or five grand. And then there was my money, you know, and I was living in, in, I mean, the, my mortgage on my first condo was covered and my single family that I had, I think was only like a $1,200 mortgage. So I kept my living expenses very lean in order for that purpose. So I was able to invest every dollar into a down payment. And then were you managing all of them at the same time on your own, or were you hiring out a property manager to help you? No, I was doing it myself, mostly because the units that were buying were so low maintenance after the initial work on leasing them, there was virtually no headache. I mean, and these are all private tenants. I hadn't gotten into Section 8 yet at this point. 
Okay. So then like when you were looking at the condos, I guess, what percentage were you looking to make a return on each of those condos to make sure that you turned a profit? So at the time it was very unsophisticated. I didn't know anything about cash on cash return or cap rates, IRR or any of that. So all I was looking at, I was like, I made 500 bucks on my first one. I just want to keep making five or 600 bucks on each one. And I was buying them all for the same price. It was under hundred grand. So I didn't know the exact return at the time. Now I come to find out that it's probably a 40 to 50% cash on cash return. And that's still kind of the benchmark that I use today is making sure that, that it's cash flowing strong. I'm not buying, you know, speculating on appreciation. I'm not buying for, to break even and just, you know, have equity growth. I'm looking for cash flow. I mean, at the end of the day, cash flow is what makes it kind of recession or market proof. So then you mentioned that the condos, the HOA association fees started to add up and everything like that. So at that point that you started to realize that you wanted to get into single family instead? Yeah. 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 So I moved into non-HOA single family. That was kind of the turning point. I started buying $150,000, $160,000 houses. They're really nice, you know, starter homes, starter neighborhoods, you know, kind of brick ranches built in the 70s and 80s. And I was getting more rent, but my return was about the same as what I was on these $80,000 condos because obviously my mortgage is higher. The downside there is a $160,000 unit. Now I had to come up with twice the down payment. So it took me twice as long to be able to buy them. So I did probably three or four of those deals before I realized like I got to look for houses under hundred grand that were non-HOA, that were single family. And that leaves you very few options. So I was now going downtown and that's where I got started with um, section eight. Got it. And this is all within driving distance, local markets. This is all one zip code. This is all one zip code. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And so then now you went down to downtown and you're looking yeah. for, you had your criteria much more refined now. So you're looking for yeah. specific things. And so after you got into downtown, were you able to find those properties? And then yeah. were they all single family homes? Yeah, yeah, they were all single family. And I bought a few of them, 60, 70,000 bucks, and they were cash flowing well, all private tenants. And then I bought my first one. I went like way low. I bought a $55,000 unit. It was rented for $1,350 by this older guy. He was retiring. He wanted to get rid of it. And the day after we closed, he calls me and he's like, Hey, we need to switch over your account to section eight for direct deposits. Like, what do you mean section eight? I thought this was just like a regular rental because all my rentals up until this point have just been regular market rate rentals. And he was like, how did you think I was getting $1,350 a month on a $55,000 unit? Like I was a complete idiot. And I was like, you know, I was like, well, uh, I don't know, but I'm about to find out. So I gave him a voided check or I gave the housing authority a voided check. They switched over my direct deposit. These tenants were disabled. So Section 8 was paying 100% of it. I mean, every month, direct deposit, $1,350. And that's the second light bulb moment where I accidentally kind of fell into it. I was like, oh shit, Like this is exactly what I need to be doing is the returns are insane. I'm buying move-in ready three-bedroom units for 60, 50 grand. And my mortgage on it, I'll never forget because I did it with a credit union. They did, I think, up to 30,000 minimum on the loan payment. So on 55 grand, I put 20% down. It was like 11 or 12 grand down. I financed 43 or 44 grand. My loan payment with principal interest tax and insurance is $390 per month. And it was rented for 1350. Oh, wow. So the cash flow was insane. I put 12 grand down to make 900 a month. I mean, it was, I need to do more of this. And that's kind of where I started scaling because at that point, it was a no brainer. So then how are you even finding these types of properties? Like, were you going, you know, were you looking on MLS or were these like off-market deals? How are you actually finding these types yeah. of properties? That's a good question. I was doing it two different ways. One was off MLS. I mean, at the time, this is the heyday of, you know, getting good rentals as a buyer's market. 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19 was where a majority of this growth happened. So you can just jump on MLS, find an $80,000 unit. 
and you might need some work to get an inspection ready for section eight, but you could buy it. But I was also wholesaling at the time. So keep in mind, instead of now, when I was wholesaling and selling it to another buyer, I would sell it to myself. I would just essentially do the wholesaling work. So I was finding units off market. I had those, you know, we buy ugly house signs everywhere in my city. And I was getting inbound leads from that. I was spending maybe a thousand or 2000 bucks a month on Facebook ads and getting just a basic opt-in form. Like, Hey, give us your address and we'll make an offer on your house. And yeah, so it was kind of a combination of both. Got it. So then now you found and you figured out like with the section eight, with this new property that you had purchased yeah. and then this different whole entire model and the light bulb went off. How did you actually pursue other types of similar types of property like this? And were there already section eight tenants already in place or were you actively seeking to convert houses into section eight units? Yeah. So it was a bit of both. I mean, I wasn't discriminating if there was a tenant or not. I was mostly concerned about the location and the condition of the property. If there was a tenant in there that wasn't section eight, then obviously I give them a chance to bring the rent up to a section eight rent. More than likely they wanted to stay. So they would just pay the higher rent, which is fine. It was the actual market rate at the time. Um, if it was vacant, then yeah, it was automatic section eight. I only wanted to do section eight from that point on. And then can you also like for people who might not be familiar with what section eight is, yeah. what is it at the top level? Sure. Section eight is a federal program that helps people that are economically disadvantaged. They're at the poverty line or below, and they will pay up to hundred percent of their rent and it's paid directly to the landlord. In some cases, the tenant, if they have, for example, a part-time job somewhere, they'll have a portion of that rent. So on a $1,400 rent, they might pay $100 or $150. And then the government pays the, the difference. So then what's the benefits of having a Section 8 tenant versus just like a regular tenant? The big thing, there's a bunch. One, it's obviously guaranteed rent. The government will guarantee that monthly rent as long as the unit passes the annual inspection, which we'll get into that later. Two, the tenants stay for a long time. Not a lot of landlords accept Section 8 because of all the misconceptions that come with it. So if you get a tenant in your property, they know that if they move out, finding another unit somewhere else is going to be challenging. So, I mean, I have tenants that have been there since I started this, like seven, eight years ago that are still there today. So low turnover, guaranteed rental income and leverage. If you have a regular tenant and you have a problem with them, you have to take them to court. Here, we call up their Section 8 counselor and say, hey, look, this tenant is having issues. You know, they're breaking the lease. We're going to either evict them or if you guys can, you know, give them a call. In one call, the housing authority to the tenant, they don't want to be blackballed from the system. If you're banned from the system, it's your social security number. It's a federal program. You can't get housing assistance anywhere else in the country. You're just screwed. So that's a lot of leverage to be able to have control and be able to enforce your lease without having to spend money on it. So between the low turnover, the guaranteed rent, and, you know, having tenants that will actually listen to, to what you're needing them to do, it works really well. Yeah. And I would imagine too, because they don't want to get blackballed or blacklisted from this yeah. program, you know, they're going to upkeep the property much higher to a higher standard. Also, they're going to take better care of the unit. So there's less turnover costs later on for you as the owner as well, because I think I would imagine that they want to get good recommendations, good referrals for the next yeah. property that they go and rent from. That's true. And I mean, the big misconception that people have is that they destroy the units because this is what happens. And I talk to literally hundreds of investors every month because I have a coaching program. So I have, you know, everyone's fears about it. And what, what happens is you'll get a new landlord, they have an empty house and they get a tenant. The tenant comes, they waive their $2,000 security deposit. And they're like, I have a Section 8 voucher. Great. I'll take it. It's guaranteed rent. What could go wrong? But they never screen the tenant. That tenant could have been a convicted drug trafficker, or they could have been manufacturing meth in their you know, basement two months ago. You never know unless you screen them. So what happens is just because the rent's guaranteed doesn't mean the quality of the tenant's guaranteed. And that's where people make that, that really big mistake. And then the program gets a bad rap. 
Got it. So looking at the background of the tenants and doing your due diligence on the tenant themselves is one of the the things that you should be taking a look at before renting out to you know, oh, yeah. any tenant. But what are other some risks, I guess, that comes with the Section 8 tenants as well? So, I mean, the risk of, of, of getting a tenant is the same risk as a normal tenant. The way that I look at it and I tell everybody, it's, it's just a payment method. You know, if you go and you rent a unit, you're going to be paying with a certified check or a wire or a credit card every month. They're paying with Uncle Sam's wallet. There's no other difference between you and them as far as the type of tenant. I'm screening you guys the exact same. Still, I'm doing income verification, landlord verification, credit background, and also... We take it a step further. I have my property manager go to where you're currently living to check out your current residence to see if you're taking care of that property. So the risk that we have is is super low. The only time we ever have issues is if that tenant brings in a girlfriend or boyfriend, so some third party that we never got to vet. And then sometimes that can cause problems, but you know that can happen with any type of tenant. Yeah. And so then from the Section 8, like from a marketing standpoint, how are you seeking out? How do you get the Section 8 tenants to rent your properties? Are you actively marketing to the program or how does that typically work? Yeah, that's another beautiful part of the program. So you can call any housing authority in the country right now and just say that you want to be on Section 8 and they're probably going to laugh at you and tell you to wait three to five years. That's a waiting list on average in most in most counties. So once we have a vacant unit and we call the housing authority and say, hey, look, we have this three bedroom available. They have a few different ways of notifying tenants. I mean, I have some counties that we work in, they have a MailChimp list. They'll email them all and then we just get blasted with applications or more than likely, they have like a, a bulletin board in their lobby. They post the address and then we get calls from them. We haven't marketed a property in over five years. I mean, we don't use hot pads or Zillow or anything like that because there's such a demand. The waiting list is huge everywhere and there's really no reason to. We just let the housing authority know and they fill it for us. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Got it. And so let's say if there's an issue with yourself and a tenant that you guys cannot resolve. And then, so then do you just contact the housing authorities and they would come in as a third party to help resolve the issue and be the middleman between it? Or how does that typically work? Or do you work directly with the the tenants themselves? Yeah. In most counties, they're going to tell you, Hey, you got to deal directly with the tenant. They'll step in if it's something like egregious or like serious, or if the tenant was involved in a crime, then they'll help you there. But if you have like, oh, the tenant's not replacing air filters and you call the counselor about that, they're going to tell you, hey, I got a workload of 500 people. Like, I can't be dealing with that. So they will they will get involved on some big issues. But for the most part, it's between me and the tenant. And then it's flexible. We don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to leave the unit. So it, it's just a give and take type of relationship. And as long as you keep them happy and you maintain the unit and you make sure the unit passes inspection every year, that's where most landlords fail is... They put a tenant in, they forget about it for the whole year. They get a notice that the inspection's happening. They don't even bother to go proactively, make sure the unit's ready for inspection. And then what happens? They get a laundry list of issues that need to be resolved and they're freaking out because you know it costs two grand that they weren't expecting all of a sudden. So 
That's why we do two inspections outside of the annual inspection with Section 8. And then we also make sure that we go there like a week before the inspection to make sure that everything is going to pass. Because if you don't, and then they fail it, they give you a chance to fix everything. But if you fail it again, then they just abate the rent. They pause the rent until you fix it. So it's a big deal. So with that first property, he said the previous owner was like, oh, well, you know, why do you think I can get 1340 or something yeah. like that for the, yeah. this property? So when you're bringing in Section 8 tenants, are the rents higher for Section 8 tenants versus like regular typical tenants? And why is that? Yeah, yeah that's a really good question. I, I can't believe I didn't address that. Section 8 rents are completely agnostic as to the purchase price, right? So like if I went and I bought a $50,000 unit and I contacted you and said, hey, the rent's $1,500, you're going to go look up the property, see what I paid for it. Be like, there's no way that the, the location is not great. It's you know probably a pretty low quality builder grades finishing. Like I'm not paying $1,500 on a $50,000 unit. Section 8 doesn't care. They're based on bedroom count. So as long as you have the bedroom count that matches what they consider fair market rent for that area, which by the way, is always, I would say at least 10 to 15% higher than their market rent. The reason being is they know that there's an inspection process and there's more hoops to jump through in order to get accepted. So if you're a landlord and you can get a thousand bucks a month with no headaches and no work on the initial front end with a private tenant, why would you take a thousand bucks, even if it's guaranteed, if you have to go through inspections and deal with a, you know, a government agency? So they'll pay 1200, 1150, 1300 in order to incentivize landlords to accept that voucher. Got it. So from the inspection process, you know, what are they typically looking for in order to pass inspection and making sure it's a suitable place for a tenant to live in? Yeah. They call it the three big S's. It's sanitation, safety, and structural. So they'll make sure the foundation's good, the roof's good. And then, you know, sanitation, obviously no debris, no trash, no infestation of insects. And then safety, they're looking at windows, make sure they have locks that open and close so you can get out during a fire. All the electrical outlets work, appliances work. They do have the kind of nuances that you can only really understand once you get into it, or if you take my course, where they have, for example, like in the kitchen, you know how there'll be like ceramic tile on the floor. And sometimes there might be like a hairline crack or fracture in one of those tiles. Well, in most situations, a private tenant isn't going to care about that. I'm not going to care about that. It's not a loose tile. It's not going to cause a problem. But for them, they'll say like, hey, that's a tripping hazard. So you have to go and replace that individual tile. Or if you have some algae, like sometimes on the back of your house, you know, where the sun or shady most tenants won't care that there's some growth on the vinyl siding on the exterior of the property. Section 8 is going to go in and make you power wash it. So, I mean, there's a little bit more involved with passing those inspections. And also it depends on the inspector. You just got to be nice to the inspector. And so a newer investor who's looking to maybe potentially look into Section 8 tenants or residents into their units, what is like the first step that they should be taking in order to even like explore this option and if it's right for them? Yeah. So the first thing that I would look at is going to be the, the rents in that area. And you can just Google that. Um, it's, it's, it's published for every county. See how much they're paying. Do the cash flow analysis, simply meaning go look at what the bank is going to charge you for terms on that loan. So look at principal interest, tax and insurance and management. Those are going to be the big five expenses that you're going to incur. And then if you're making at least five or $600, assuming the unit's under hundred grand, you have a lot of people going out and trying to buy $200,000, $250,000 units and getting $1,500 rent. It doesn't work. The cash flow is not strong enough. You have one broken HVAC and your cash flow is gone for the year. So it's really important to make sure that you're cash flowing. And then from that is making sure you're finding a really target rich area. You don't want to buy in this area where there's only two good deals. And then you have to wait you know, six months for another good deal to show up. So I'm buying in areas like Ohio. I mean, if you go Google in Ohio right now, there's over 5,000 units under hundred grand. It's a great state, good landlord laws, low property taxes, affordable units. So places like that is, is kind of how I get started. So you've 
bought and sold over 500 units so far. And so at what point were you, did you realize, or did you figure out that you needed to get some type of help from partners and to be able to scale up to this level? And then what kind of triggered that? Yeah. I mean, I got to a point where I just got mostly frustrated. I mean, I was at 30 or 40 units and I was still growing pretty quick and I was happy with the growth, but inevitably what will happen is you'll start seeing these portfolio deals pop up and you know they come out at 60,000 a door and here I am feeling like an idiot paying 90,000 a door it's like how do I buy these 100 units you know I don't have a million dollars liquid to put down so after i realized that you know when i have 25 or 30 units that's a great track record even if i had 10 units i can now go approach other investors and say hey look i've already put together a portfolio of 30 units it's generating i don't know $40,000 a month in gross rents 90% of it is subsidized by the US government here's my management, here's my profit loss, here's my balance sheet, here's my rent roll. I'm trying to go out and buy these other hundred units, but I need an investor. I need a partner. You know, you bring the cash, I'll set up the financing. Because I already have all these lending relationships locally with these different banks because I just bought 30 units, three or four at a time with all of them. So I know every banker in town. And then I'll say, hey, look, we'll split the cash flow. We'll split the equity. Actually, what I would do is I would give the investor 60% of the monthly cash flow until he got his down payment back. So that way it's just an extra incentive for him to invest. They see the portfolio, you know, their their name's going to be on the title as well. And on the LLC, it's almost no risk to them. I have a track record of knowing how to manage and knowing how to stabilize portfolios. So that's how I started. I started going friends and family, did smaller loans that way, 50, 100,000 bucks. It wasn't really anything that would move the needle. But then I started going to, I go to a lot of cars and coffee events. I'm a huge car fan and I collect cars. So I started going to more of those events, met some people that wanted to do it. Hey, I have half a million bucks. Let's go buy 20 properties. Did that with one group. And then I met another investor. We bought 93 units together in downtown in Wilmington, North Carolina. And he put down 1.1 million on that. So it's just a matter. And then obviously you can then leverage those as kind of almost like social proof. Like, hey, this guy trusted me. We bought it for 6 million. And two years later, we sold it for 10 million. Here's a whole article online about it. That makes it a whole lot easier. So you essentially need to prove the model yourself with your own funds, with your own credit, your own management. And then I would say five or 10 units is all you need to really get another investor's attention to prove that you know what you're doing. And how does that initial conversation even come about? So with the cars and coffee people, I had brought... He asked what I was doing. At the time, I had like a, a 911. I was a big Porsche fan back then. And we were just talking and I was, he asked me what I did. I was like, oh, I'm in real estate. And he's like, oh, I've been wanting to get into that. And... But I already had a portfolio in mind. So I kind of went there scoping. I was like, oh, cool. Maybe we can grab lunch and I'll kind of show you what I'm doing. And then that was really it. We went to lunch. I brought a spreadsheet, showed him kind of the rent roll, showed him the cash flow. And when you can show 12 months of consistent deposits in bank statements, it's verifiable. I mean, it's a no-brainer for them. They're like, wow. I mean, most rent rolls, most... um financials, there's going to be fluctuations. There's going to be eviction costs. There's going to be all this. I didn't have any of that. I had virtually no turnover because all my units are section eight. I had really good tenants initially for my condos that I handpicked by going to lunch with them. So I was able to show 95% collections every month on time in my bank. And I said, Hey, this is my model. This is what I'm doing. Do you want to invest? And then I gave him the terms and, you know, we went back and forth some on kind of buyouts and what happens if we want to sell and you know how they get their equity or down payment back and, and go from there. But that, that was really about it is that's the beautiful thing about real estate. Everybody inherently knows it's a good investment. So you don't really have to sell it. It's not like some sketchy startup that you have an idea that you're like, like this is what I want to do. And we're going to change the world. It's like, no, we're going to go buy houses. Your name's going to be on the lien. Your risk is very little. 
And so throughout your whole entire journey, you know, within real estate and building up your business, what has been the single biggest challenge that you had to face? Eventually it was inventory, just limited inventory. Cause I mean, I was buying in Wilmington. There was a point I made a story on Instagram like five years ago. It's where you find it again. It was, I had, I was looking for houses under hundred grand on MLS on realtor.com and Zillow. And there was a solid week where every single property that was under contract was either with me or between me and my partners that we had under contract. It was like 30 some units in the whole county. Any unit under 100 grand, we owned. So I was like, this is this is becoming a problem because we wanted to buy like 50 to 100 units every month. And we were barely getting, you know, 20 to 30, you know, consistently. So I started looking elsewhere. I started going to South Carolina, Tennessee, now Ohio. My biggest challenge with that was just I had my whole management team, my whole life, everything was in this one zip code locally. And now I had to replicate this model out of state. So that would probably be the biggest challenge. So how has real estate investing impacted your life? Oh, dramatically. Allowed me to have complete control of my time, you know, to be able to do podcasts around two o'clock in the afternoon with you. Before, if I was in my marketing agency, I had, you know, staff, I had to deal with a bunch of people. I had to constantly be doing reporting. I had to deal with clients. Now I'm in a business where A, it's a basic need. Everyone needs it. So there's not high turnover. You know, you don't get random calls like, oh, I need to cancel my contract. Exactly what your turnover is going to be. The clients don't want to talk to you any more than you want to talk to the clients. And I'm not a huge people person. So that's beautiful for me. I love that. And it's passive. Everyone talks about the hype passive income. It is a reality. You do all the active work to make it passive. I mean, I had to set up four property managers. I had to set up processes. I had to set up LLCs. I had to set up software. I had to set up protocols on what happens, insurance, taxes. How do we pay the mortgage? How do we pay the debt service? How do we continue to acquire? So it takes a lot of work on the front end. But after you get it set up and you get it to be a good well-oiled machine, it, I mean, it, it truly is passive. And so what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? I wish that I had stopped managing the properties myself way sooner. I think that's a huge piece of advice that I think a lot of kind of thing Mark, you've been coined as solopreneurs try to do everything, you know, as long as they can. And I did that and it, it really hindered me. I managed up to 30 units by myself. And had I stopped at 10 units or five units... I would have had so much more time to spend on acquisitions, so much more time to spend on negotiations, so much more time to build relationships and partnerships. That would have been the biggest thing that I would have done differently was to start outsourcing, start letting go of control, not be a control freak and allow other people to, that are better at it than me to do it. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I would say to keep the momentum going. I do. I talk again with a lot of different investors every day. They'll get three units and they're very content and happy with it. And I think the big difference between like mom and pop investors and like serious, more institutional and, you know, kind of growth investors is going to be how creative they get, you know, how you find other properties, how you keep your pipeline full of, you know, deals that are full of equity, how you continue to grow the business, you know, and and I think that's going to be the big thing. And most people, what I see is they get stuck in this analysis paralysis. I mean, I have people that are sitting there with four monitors looking at pro formas and looking at PLs and balance sheets and you know projections for the next five years and return rates. I'm like, dude, it's a $60,000 unit, man. You don't need to go through all this. It's impossible for you to lose money. If you buy a $60,000 unit with a $400 a month rent, you can rent that at any time. You could sell that at any time. You can refinance it at any time. So I think they just feel like if they do this busy work and you know try to figure out every number angle, and then they just never get around to buying it. I've spoken to more people that do that and they send me their spreadsheets and it's like, just buy the house and then get started. Because after you buy the first one, it's addicting. That first rent payment that comes in, that's direct deposit and you didn't do anything for it except buy the asset, it becomes addicting. So that, that's kind of the advice that I would give there. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, you can study as much as you want. You can take a look and you can do the analysis, but it's very different when you actually go and actually take that first step and do that action oh, yeah. after you've done your homework and everything like that. And Definitely. then you realize that, hey, it's not as scary as I initially thought it was. And then the next yeah. one becomes, you know, you get more familiar with what to look for. And then like your process becomes more streamlined. And then, you know, the deals after that becomes much more easier and um, yeah. you start moving around a little bit quicker. And you have a team. I mean, you'll get, you know, inspectors, you'll get your agents, you'll get your closing attorneys and title companies. And then once you start trusting them, they do all the work for you. All you got to do is find the property. Even now I don't find properties that my agent has my power of attorney. He goes out, puts them under contract and closes on them for me. So you can really streamline it to that level. And so do you have any tools or techniques or resources that, you know, you've utilized that has been the biggest instrument to helping you with your education and, you know, getting started with real estate? For me, I use bigger pockets. The forums was pretty helpful when I got started. I'm obviously now I have a course that explains everything about Section 8. But before then, it was really trial and error. I would love to say that I had a mentor. I'd love to say there's one book that you know opened my eyes. I read a lot of Robert Kiyosaki. I know it's very cliche to re- recommend that, but it's really true. I mean, the cash flow quadrant, rich dad, poor dad, all that helped with the mindset and understand assets and liabilities and you know being able to leverage cash flow and how to be able to use real estate to kind of get to where I want. So from a literature standpoint, I read everything that he, he ever wrote. And then I just dove in head first. I said, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to be stuck with a $400 a month mortgage if I don't get it rented. Okay. It's not the end of the world. So that's how I got started. Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on and sharing yeah, your no story problem. and how you've been focusing on Section 8 and all the ins and outs of how you built up your business. Yeah, so no, far, appreciate you having me on. Yeah. So if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, you know, and learn a little bit more about Section 8 and what you're doing in this space, where's the best place that they can go to find out more? Yeah, I respond to all my DMs on Instagram. So that's the best place to, to reach out to me. And that's T as in Tom Cruz, C-R-U-Z, N-C, like North Carolina. So that's T Cruz N-C. You can DM me directly there. And then if you're interested in learning more about Section 8, you guys can check out Section 8, the number 8, formula.com. You can book a call with me or somebody on my team and we'll have a strategy call. I do have a $5,000 coaching course for 12 months and also includes video content with all the resources that you need to get started. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Tom. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.